I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. everyone and welcome to tonight's conversation with Patrick Gale. A warm welcome to our guest whose Tuesday in fact is only just beginning. He's on his farm in the very beautiful most western part of England near Land's End in Cornwall. Patrick thank you for your company today. It's so lovely to meet you and and have you with us in the Zoom room. It's a delight Corey. I've really missed Australia so it's quite nice to feel I'm I'm slightly in Australia. <laughs> well, come back again. We would love to see you anytime. Patrick, first of all, a big thank you for the plethora of wonderful novels that you've given us over so many years. There have been so many highlights over such a long period. And as a former bookseller who had a bookshop for 12 years, I can only reaffirm what many, many thousands of, of readers know, but also booksellers and your publishers as well, that you are a real hit and a real star. And we are so lucky to have you and your wonderful stories. Oh, that's so kind of you. I mean, I'd be nowhere without booksellers and readers. I'd be a psychotherapist and I'd be rich, but never mind. I love, I love in your bio notes, Patrick, that you declare that you have never had a grown-up job. And while you were working on your earliest novels, you supported yourself with a range of part-time gigs, including as a typist, as a singing waiter, and as a ghostwriter for an encyclopedia of musicals, which, you know, just sort of reminds us that the writer's, the beginning of the writer's career is often a curious and sometimes precarious one. Yes, an accidental one as well. I think there's so much chance comes into play. But I started very young. I was, what, 21 when I wrote my first book. And I, I'm amazed they're still in print, those early books, because they're very slight. And I was very young and knew nothing. But people seem to have a, an affection for them. So, Patrick, uh, you went to one of my favourite places in the world, Winchester, Winchester College. And, of course, uh, I, I remember the cathedral as many visitors to England do it is certainly on the Gothic Cathedral's trail of the UK, a beautiful place uh, in which to grow up. And then you studied at Oxford. I just wondered at what point was becoming a full-time writer part of your plan? It wasn't at all. all my, most of my time at school, I was going to be a professional musician. 
that was my my big thing. I was going to be a, a pianist or a cellist. And I suppose insofar as I did any writing, which I did a lot of writing, but I didn't take it seriously, but I, I did fall in love with the theatre. I wrote a lot of terrible plays as a teenager and I acted. Winchester had a fantastic drama department, so I acted a lot. And the acting really kind of carried on through my time as a student to the point where I actually auditioned for drama schools. I did pretty well. I got you know, called back to several of them. And I think I only jumped sideways into writing because of a, a tragedy. My second of my two older brothers was killed in a car crash when he was 25 and I was in my early 20s, not quite at the end of my time at a university. And I think that that really shook me up, not just with grief, but with a kind of panic about how short life can be. And it seemed to switch something in my brain that made me think, okay, I've got, I've got to get on and do it now. I can't put it off. And so the writing took over. The acting is still there. I, I still I record all my talking books myself, uh, which I love doing. But I'm, I'm very glad I didn't become either a, a professional actor or a musician. They're both things that give me great joy, but they're not easy ways to make a living. And yet, you know, you, you wrote Man in an Orange Shirt for television and it was highly successful. In fact, Man in an Orange Shirt won an Emmy Award. So congratulations to you and the team on that. I gather that writing for television is an experience. You've, you've continued that and it was an, an experience. Absolutely. Yes. And funnily enough, I'm now writing for the theatre um, for the next year. I'm completely absorbed in two theatre projects, one of which is a musical on Man in the Orange Shirt, which I've been working on for the last year. And we're now at the very exciting stage of looking for producers. And we've got a little queue of interested parties, so we'll see. And I've also been commissioned to adapt my last novel, Take Nothing With You, as a stage play. And that's kind of a musical by default, because the very exciting director I'm working with is determined we should have lots of live music on stage. So half the performers will actually be musicians who can act a bit. And then half will be actors who can play the cello a bit. So watch this space. It might yet come on tour to Australia. We'll see. So I don't want to give away your age, but everybody could Google it. So here you are turning 60 and you are actually back to where you began in the theatre. <laughs> Isn't it lovely? Yes, I know. I'm very excited. and I love being 60, and not just for the cheap train travel. <laughs> Join the club. Patrick, in a moment, I wanted us to talk in detail about your 17th novel, Mother's Boy, which arrived in bookshops earlier this year and has been read and loved by so many in our audience. But first, I wanted to ask you about the place in which you live and, and where you write. Tell us about your farm. Well, the farm is the last farm in England. It's literally at Land's End. So on the big, it's on the kind of big toenail of the big toe of England, right down there. And I write in this shed I'm in now, which is, I'll show you the lovely curved ceiling. It's um, beautiful. It's actually part of the farm. It used to be where big business lived. It was the bull shed in my father-in-law's day. And then when Aidan and I met, it was the diesel shed. So it, it stank of tractor diesel. And we took it to pieces and rebuilt it. So the outside is an old granite building rebuilt but the inside is lined with oak. So it's like a, a lovely upturned boat. Very, I'm very, very lucky. I kind of live in paradise and uh, I write in paradise too. 
Aiden's my husband. And, he, and he's, a, he's a sculptor. So does he have a similar sort of studio somewhere else on the property? Oh, he has an even more beautiful studio, though it's a lot dustier than this. This has cobwebs in. His is thick with stone dust. He works across the garden from here in a, a lovely old barn, which is a bit like a cathedral. It's really, really high with lovely, lovely wooden beams. Uh, and he's increasingly, you know, he's doing so well as a sculptor now that I think the farming is is becoming slightly marginal. Luckily, his father-in-law is getting on for a hundred and doesn't take too much interest anymore because he's only two fields away. But uh, yeah, but the two of us, the two of us, sort of bounce off each other. We're both very kind of eccentrically creative, and we respect that we each respect that the other regularly has to disappear for days on end to do whatever's in their head. And you know, we'll meet up for a drink in the evening. It's very probably, simple. Probably, probably not a bad way to run a marriage, truth be told. <laughs> 2019 and before lockdowns and before Australians were no longer allowed to travel, I did a walk through Cornwall, a small part, and it was in June, summer for you, freezing cold, lots of rain. <laughs> um, I can't imagine what Land's End must be like because we were on the southern, the southwestern coast a little more protected and yet you have apparently such a beautiful rose garden how on earth do you do that um with the help of an eight foot high wall which we built so uh, i persuaded aiden to let me adopt a great chunk of the old farmyard so we walled across from the house to the barn where his sculpture studio is and that that's helped but it is a challenge because the soil here is only a foot deep where it's so stony, we're basically on a spine of granite that goes out into the sea. So all the garden is raised, all the beds are about a metre off the ground and filled with poo from our lovely cattle. So uh, the roses do pretty well, yeah. If anyone is coming on holiday to England in June or July, uh, they can come on a tour of the garden. We open it for charity. I think that sounds like an excellent idea. And also people can follow you on Twitter, where just the other day you said, Padron peppers are only meant to be occasionally fierce, like a vegetable Russian roulette. Yet every one of, on every plant I've grown this year, they have been fiery. I think I was missold jalapenos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm the only one who eats them now. Aidan is very sensitive to chili and these so-called mild Padron peppers blow your socks off. Let's talk about Mother's Boy, the novel, of course, based on the life of Cornish poet Charles Causley and his widowed mother, Laura. Tell me firstly about your connection with Charles Causley, Patrick. He, like you, he lived in Cornwall and indeed you are now the patron of the Charles Causley Trust. He died in 2003, but did you ever meet him? No, I passed up the opportunity to meet him. When I first moved to Cornwall, I was just starting out as a writer. A friend of mine's terrifying mother was a friend of Causley's, and she was always trying to bring us together, and I was always finding excuses not to. And I think Causley would have found me really quite alarming. I'm you know, very out there. I'm a very openly gay person, and he was never comfortable with his sexuality to the point where you can't even stick a label on it. And I, I think he, he'd have, his little fortress would have gone up pretty sharp in my presence. But I fell completely in love with his poetry. I, I read more and more of it once I was living down here. And I became more and more intrigued by his story because on the face of it, it's one of the least sexy biographies of any British poet. He, he, 
lived and worked in the same little Cornish town. He lived with his mother. He died a virgin. I mean, it's not an exciting life. He was a primary school teacher, for heaven's sake. And yet, when you read the poems, there is clearly so much going on. There is tremendous passion there. There is intimacy. There, there is there's all sorts. And I wanted to unpick that because I was very concerned that as a, an old white male author, he was slipping from public view. He's recently come off the national curriculum, which means school children are no longer obliged to read any of his poems, which I think is a tragedy. So I thought by writing a, a fairly sexy novel, I would draw attention to him afresh. And it seems to be working. I, I'm, I'm delighted when I hear from readers who say they read the whole novel with no idea that it was based on any, anybody real. And then when they got to the end and they read my afterword, they immediately Googled Charles Causley poetry. And within seconds, they were listening to recordings of Charles reading Eden Rock and Timothy Winters and all those, those golden greats of his. Well, that, in fact, at one of our book clubs, we actually played one of his recordings. They're quite accessible. Oh, good. In Australia, of course, he's not all that, all that well known. And I was interested to read that Ted Hughes, in fact, he's a younger contemporary, after Sir John Benjamin died as the Poet Laureate, Ted Hughes put Charles Causley Ford as a, a suggested as a nomination to become Poet Laureate. And I wondered, did you have any theories or views on why Charles may have been overlooked for that? I think he, if he was overlooked, I mean, he may have been invited and turned it down which wouldn't have surprised me because he, although he accepted an MBE from the Queen, he was pretty socialist and very, very much somebody whose whole self-image was based on being an outsider. He didn't go to university. He was a working class poet and he, he clung to that identity. And I think he might not have been entirely comfortable suddenly being ushered into the kind of upper echelons in that way. But he may also have been passed over because, because of you know, rumours about his sexuality, who knows? It, it, it was a very different time. But he and Ted, were, they were good friends. And he was also, he was very much in the, in, in the top rank of poets as far as national recognition was concerned. And he was a much-loved broadcaster. In my boyhood, he was often on Listen With Mother, the children's programme, reading poetry. He remained passionate about bringing poetry alive for children. So one of the things I do as patron of the Causley Trust is to ensure we have an annual competition for children to, to write poetry. And, and, you're a great, and you're a great advocate of his uh, collection of verse for children. You, always, you seem to recommend... It's wonderful. Yes, it is really wonderful. And I always say, if you're stuck for a present for a, a fairly bookish child or a child who just loves language, get them Causley's children's poetry. It's a lovely little volume. And it's wonderfully invented, a bit like the poetry of Spike Milligan, who some older readers may remember. It's very, it's full of wordplay and it's enormously easy to memorise. A lot of our gang tonight are part of a book club and we did uh, your Irish writer colleague, Colin Toybean's The Magician last year, the fictional oh, story yeah. of the life of German writer Thomas Mann. And this followed, of course, Colm's earlier much acclaimed novel, The Master, which was based on a section of Henry James's life. And in an interview, he was asked about this absorbing yourself into the life of another writer. I wondered what your approach was to getting into the weeds of Charles's life without really knowing him and 
probably primarily your, your main source was his poetry. Well, I was very lucky in the Charles Causley archive, which has secret diaries, which he kept from his late teens until about halfway through the Second World War. Those are an amazingly evocative way of getting into his head. They're not brilliantly written. They'll never be published, I suspect. But they really helped me be confident about the way his mind worked. But the other really useful thing was the character of his mother, Laura, because I knew, I knew even before I started that Charles was quite a prickly character and might be a bit difficult for the reader to love. So I knew right from the start I was never going to write just from his point of view. I needed to have somebody in the picture who loved him unconditionally. So that was his mum. And she in turn helped me because we know so little about her other than the very bare facts that she was totally like, she was like a, a character in a book right from the start. I knew I could inhabit her and make her up as long as I honoured the, the, the few known facts about her. And so she is like the lens through which we bring Charles to life. But I, I suppose in some ways I was a bit of a coward in that I always knew I would stop at the point where Charles became Charles Causley, the poet. So it was always going to be a novel about the making of a poet. And that really fascinated me because when he was a young man and when he went off to war, he was a playwright, not a poet at all. And something about the mechanism of training as a coder, so those intense you know, mind exercises he had to do, combined with the trauma of the war, I think, turns him into a poet. And that, that I found really rewarding to explore. And patterns too, being aware of patterns. And, and because he was a musician as well, he must clearly must have had a great ear for music, uh, ear for sound. Yes. And it's very interesting when you look at the manuscripts of his poems, on many of them he will write to be sung to the tune of Annie Laurie or whatever. So he was thinking musically even when he was writing poems and quite, well, many of them have been set to music. If, if anyone's curious, one of his cousins, a young gay cousin of his, Jim Causley, has done two CDs of wonderful folk song settings he's written, first of Charles's adult poems and then of the children's poems. Uh, they're well worth a Google. How wonderful that his forebears are, are still so engaged with his work. Well, it's a funny one. that I, I've done several gigs with Jim where he'll sing Causley songs and I will read from the book. And um, he always says that when he was very little, he had no idea he had this famous cousin. It, it wasn't a big source of pride in the family at all. And it was only one of his English teachers at school in Devon who said, you know, held up a book that said Charles Causley poetry and said, you do know this is your cousin. And Jim, up until that point, really hadn't made the connection. Who inherited the rights then, Patrick, to his work? or the Oh, that's a terrible mess. Charles left all the rights to a young German poet he was very close to, whereby around which there is a big mystery. But basically, if at the moment, if any of us want to quote his poetry, we have to pay for it and get permission from an agent who acts on behalf of this poet in Germany. And with my Causley Trust hat on, it's hugely frustrating because here we are trying to promote the work of this wonderful man and we're not allowed to quote his poems without paying for them. But we don't have that much money. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Michael Haneke, the, this German chap, will leave us the rights to the poems in his will. Oh, well, I hope so. I think we should all oh. 
I think we should all write it. But it is, but it is significant that when in Charles's will, he left nothing significant to any blood relative. Very interesting. He had lots of relations, lots of cousins. He left his uh, his two houses were left to other people. One of them to the trust. One of them to a, a dear friend. He left all his rights to this chap in Germany. So it, it's it's interesting. And do we know whether there were romantic connections? There were, but he stifled them. He, he did his best to appear a man who had no emotional life. Officially, his mother was the love of his life, and there, that was the end of the story. But when I was researching the book, I found quite clear evidence that he was what we would call gay. He would never have used that term. But there's a really strong sense when he goes away to, to war, and he gets to Gibraltar. So finally, he's not being seasick on a boat. He's on land. He really has a high old time. And there's a, there's a letter I found, which I've paraphrased in the book, which is clear evidence that he had some kind of a love affair with, well, a sexual affair, at least, with a, an officer in the Navy when they were both stationed in HMS Kabbalah, uh, one of the land frigates near Liverpool. And I put that into the book. I've changed the names, obviously. But um, so he, he clearly did have these adventures during the war. But I think when he came home to England and the end of the war, it was to come home to an era when there was major, major persecution of gay men. It was totally illegal. I mean, you could be sent to prison simply for love letters. You know, it, it, it didn't even have to have done much. So I think it's no surprise that he took this path of hiding behind this public persona of Mr. Causley, the teacher, immensely respectable, lives with his mother. And his mother, Laura, very much acted as his kind of guard dog. She kept everybody away. And I think no, no woman who set her cap at Charles would have got close. But also there was never any breath of scandal. And when Laura died, Charles basically had a nervous breakdown. His grief was out of all proportion given that she was an old lady. And I think it was partly panic that he had lost that barrier between him and the world. He had lost the excuse not to be committed to anybody emotionally. I think it was very difficult for him. And interestingly, that's the point in his life when he stops teaching. He withdraws from all that sort of public persona he'd so carefully built up. And then he gradually re-emerges as a public poet and does very well, but always with this sense of, of of a mask he's a man wearing a mask it's it's a it's a very difficult persona and one of the things i've tried to do with the book is to unpick that persona and show that there's actually a flesh and blood man behind it patrick it is a beautiful book and it's it, and it's sensuous and it's i mean even even young charles as the child the child on the beach with the scratchy woolen bathers who's feeling <laughs> you know so there are so many examples of charles's inner self and his sensitivity, and I just don't mean hurt feelings by that, but he has a strong sense of, of something possible, something other. And, and I, I love the way you have accessed that as a boy, as a teenager, and then, of course, as somebody in the army. And, I mean, your descriptions of, of, of battle are, are really extraordinary. That, that takes the book to a whole other level for me. But tell me about getting into this this person, this romantic person, this sensuous person that is Charles Causley. The words of his poetry and his diaries must have just sprung forth to you telling you a different story. 
They did a bit, and there are there are a handful of little essays he wrote late in life about his childhood, and I used those and I used the poems. So a lot of the characters in the book are, are actually characters from the poems. So Aggie, the the town prostitute, is lifted out of one of his poems, the Demolition Order, and his friendship with the butcher boy who beats him up as a little boy, but then becomes a friend. That's also based on quite a few of the poems. So the poems helped, but there were also wonderful documents. And also inevitably, I projected my memories of my childhood into Charles's childhood, because I think it's common to most creative people that when they're children, they, they feel too much. It's as if they, they lack a layer. And you'll often hear artists and writers parents saying how much they worried for them as children because they were they were too sensitive and I I remember that that sense of being in a crowd at school being a kind of nightmare in a way because I, I, I felt things too much and there's that wonderful breakthrough when you discover your particular art form whatever it is and that then becomes your shield against the feelings and your way of channeling it so to some extent I was ventriloquizing I, I was using Charles the child to explore my own memories of that. But, but as I say, if you look through his poems, there are enough autobiographical moments that you can stitch them together. But when he was an old man and people said to him, Charles, why don't you write your memoirs? He always said, oh, I don't need to. It's, it's all in the poems. But actually, the other thing about Charles is he did write some fiction. There's one book of marvellous short stories he wrote very early on called Hands to Dance and Skylark. And they are, I think, pretty autobiographical. They're all stories about his time in the Navy. And Australian readers would do particularly well to seek them out because there are two or three of the stories set in Australia. He loved Australia. He was very struck by his last tour of duty in the Navy where he was on a, a great big, as I put in the book, this enormous aircraft carrier, which was responsible for part of the, helping liberate the Pacific, the South Pacific, from the Japanese. And he met lots of Australian soldiers and sailors through that, because many of them travelled on the ship to get from place to place. And I, he made friendships that lasted all his life out there. I think he, he actually went to Australia on a couple of reading tours and teaching tours, and it, it was clearly a place that struck him deeply. I think, in a way, he retreated from fiction because he realised how exposed he was in it. It revealed too much of him, whereas poetry was a kind of code and he could hide behind it. In the archive, I found an unfinished novel, again, about his time in the Navy. And it's very camp. It's extremely camp. And I'm not... A... What sort of way, Patrick? Well, the humour, the humour in it, I immediately recognise as the humour of a, of a gay man. And it's naval, naval life was inherently quite camp because it's lots of men living together and making do and being domestic and giving each other funny nicknames and there's a character who I, I borrowed for the book in in this unfinished novel who's a, a very tall very butch sailor whose surname is Bo and so his nickname Clara as in Clara Bo and things like that that Charles clearly relished and I can see totally why he never finished the novel, because it was basically like a, it would have been like a coming out document. He mm. could never have published. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Tell me 
about, as you're talking about all the characters that he met during his Navy life, tell me about Kushti. Where did he come from for you? Oh, <laughs> Kushti is pure fantasy on my part. Kushti is a gentle giant. He's a, he's, he, works, he works in the, the kind of arms department on the ship. He's very big and strong. He's a scouser from Liverpool and, and a redhead. And there is clearly a very strong bond that forms between these two very different men very early on. And they, Christie is keen to learn and Charles is one of nature's teachers. And so they have these conversations that go on and on and on every time they're on shore leave, they meet up again. And Christie, um, Charles, Charles gets a crush on Christie, which he suppresses, but one thing leads to another. And that in part is based on one of these amazing short stories by Charles, which is set in Malta, at just the point where I have a chapter in the novel. I don't want to give away too much of the plot. I have a chapter in the novel where Charles and Christie finally get it on. And that's based on a, a short story in Charles's collection where two sailors are um, caught up in a bombing raid in Malta and are obliged to bunk up in a tiny little bedroom for the night. In the story, he doesn't spell things out, but it's clear to me what he's thinking in the story. Patrick, I want to talk about Laura because in book clubs, as you can imagine, she's a much talked about and fascinating character. But I'm interested, you said earlier that she was very protective of him. And yet in the book, you present a Laura who you just, you suggest to us that she might just have been onto it. She might have just exactly known at some point what Charles's quiet hidden story and hidden secrets might have been. How did you unfold the Laura character? As, as Laura, a quiet, yeah. rather shy widow who then becomes a washerwoman, rears this no. very special, clever, intelligent, gifted son. Well, that partly she was inspired by photographs. There, there are several. She was poor, so she couldn't afford to take have pictures taken very often. But at key moments in Charles's life, there are photographs she had done of her and him. And in every single picture, little Charles is staring out at the camera, looking very clever. and. Laura is just looking at Charles with something like amazement. And that was the trigger for me. I thought, well, what on earth was it like for this woman who was barely educated to realise she had produced this son who was rapidly reading every book in the local library and was sort of off the scale clever as far as her family was concerned because she had no reference points at all. And yet she did amazing things for him, one of which was despite the fact that she was only earning pennies, she bought him a piano. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And at that stage, they were living in a little rented tenement in what's basically a slum. And you know, no household there would have had a piano. There, there was barely room for a piano. And yet I met old men and women who as children remembered sitting on the pavement outside the tenement to listen to the wonder that was Charles's piano playing. Laura clearly was an amazing mother. I think she she may not have fully understood him, but she gave him that precious space in which to evolve and become himself. She was very Christian, as in the book, she was very Christian, she went to church regularly, she had very strong moral values. But looking at Charles's poetry, you, you see there is this very dry Cornish wit that weaves through it. And I think that must have come from Laura. It couldn't have come from his dad because his dad died when he was a very little boy. So I think Laura's voice came to me partly through the poems. She's partly based on my very Cornish 
parents-in-law, my, my father-in-law, who is nearly 100, is very, very Cornish, absolutely adorable man, and has this very Cornish sense of humour that's extreme. It's so dry, you hardly notice when he's pulling your leg. He has a way, though, when, when I'm maybe being a bit fanciful or a bit urban or pretentious, whatever, he will just go, oh, yes. And it's it's you know, completely devastating. And, and Laura, I just gave that to Laura, really. So I sort of knew who she was from the off. But um, you've also given you've also given her great insight or perception because you encourage us, the reader, to think that Laura knows at some point about yeah. Well, children. I think mothers do. I think I think mothers they may not want to know. And they may deny it to themselves. I know my own mother did. But I think most mothers of, of queer children, they, they, they sense pretty early on that they're not as other children. It's, it's very obvious when you watch children at play. I mean, and I imagine that Charles was just like me as a little boy and tended to gravitate to the girls in the playground because their games were more interesting. It was as simple as that. They were just, it was more interesting to talk about relations and to play house than to be kicked with a ball or whatever. So I think, you know, Laura, she wasn't stupid to that extent. She must have known. And what I was very careful to do was never fully to spell it out. So she's not a fool and she sees that his main friendships are with other boys and that he is special, in inverted commas. But, uh, you know, bearing in mind how extremely dangerous it was to be yourself if you were gay in the 1950s. And he, as he became, again, asserted himself into the public arena, it would have been even more difficult for him to come to terms with. Do you think Charles was rep repressed more by the times and anti-homosexual attitudes, or was his repression partly the fault or the cause of his mother? Oh, that's a really good question. I'll unpick it. Um, I don't think their relationship was incestuous or quasi-incestuous, but... I think any single mothers will admit, especially single mothers of boys, that there is a moment in that mother-son relationship where unless the mother finds another partner, her son can become the repository of a lot of her stronger feelings. And so I had, I had, there's a beat in the story where Laura worries because she knows she's resisting marrying again. And she's aware that Charles is the, her main focus. And I think from Charles's point of view, that, that focus from his mother becomes almost intolerable. I mean, certainly in his, in his teenage diaries, he can't bear her. You know, she drives him nuts. He's constantly trying to escape her. And they live in this tiny place at a tiny house. And reading between the lines, I could tell Laura gets more and more frustrated with him blocking her and pushing her away and not going for walks with her and so on. But as to the repression, I think that's a, you can't really pick apart the different influences. Yes, it would be partly a sense of shame because any gay person will almost unconsciously, you just absorb the sense of shame because you're aware you don't fit. If you go to church with your parents, you're very aware you are less than the Christian ideal. And you pick it up from your childhood reading because you, know, you read these fairy tales in which you can't see yourself. You don't. You're not. You're not the prince or the princess. So you must be Rumpelstiltskin or something. It, yeah, that that sense of difference is very powerful for queer children, and I think they just 
button it down and it becomes part of who they are. But then when you add to that official repression, um, you know, uh, official persecution, it's a very powerful mix. And it's, it's, I think, very important when writing about the men, especially women to a lesser extent, because they weren't so persecuted by the law in this country. But queer men of that generation, I think it's very important not to put labels on them, not to call them gay, because most of them were never comfortable with their sexuality. They never had the chance to be. And not to either to make judgments on them when they chose to to stay hidden, because I think it was a very, very frightening time for them. And one of the one of the most enlightening books for me, as a you know, as as a straight as a straight woman of this particular contemporary time, was uh, was in fact Clon Toybin's The Master all those years ago, because Henry yeah. James was in a very very similar situation to your Charles Causley. And it, it was we, we have to bear in mind. I mean, the Oscar Wilde trial was in James's memory. Yeah, that 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 trial and, and the effects of it persevered, but. The, the persecution that came immediately after the Second World War, the, the wild era pales by comparison. There were so many arrests, so many men sent to prison just for being gay. I mean, it's quite astonishing. And it's almost like a national revulsion against things that may have happened at sea and in the, in the army during the war. I think a lot of men living with other men may well have had what we would now call gay experiences while they were fighting for their lives. And they kind of, as part of the sort of national act of forgetting, they then encourage this period of persecution as if to say, they're the enemy, they're not us. We were never like that. I know my own father had this experience because the, before he married my mother, the love of his life really was this other man who he had known from boyhood. They went to school together. They fought in the war together. But then they both chose, because it was the only way, to marry and to be... They were godfathers to each other's first children. But the the, the sexual relationship ceased the moment my father got married. And he went to his death thinking no one knew. Of course, my mother found out and made sure we all knew. I mean, this is a fascinating story now. And how did she find out, Petri? Oh, she found a stash of love letters in his desk. She was tidying his desk, silly woman, um, when she was pregnant with me. So 12 years into their marriage, they were about to move prisons. He was a prison governor. Governors had to move every five years. And she found these letters and she was terrified because she thought, well, if these fall into the wrong hands, he'll go to prison. He'll lose his job. So she burnt the letters. She never told him she'd found them. And... One wonders whether he noticed they were missing. He was very absent-minded, so he might not have done. But she did say to me, it was clear from the letters that he had shown this other man a passion that he had never shown her as his wife, which is desperately sad, actually. And so when I wrote Man in the Orange Shirt, what I was doing was imagining what would have happened if instead of keeping it quiet, she actually confronted him. Because they wouldn't have divorced, but their marriage would have evolved in different ways and also that difficulty for the woman being a loving mother a mother of four children the potential for persecution and prosecution and also and also she was of that generation who ignorantly assumed if you were gay it meant you were a paedophile they Mm -hmm. thought the two things were the same thing Mm -hmm. so she never ever 
left me alone with my father. Um, I didn't really get to know him until my teens because my mother was always between us, always, always, always. Did you ever discuss with him quite comfortably your sexuality? No, (laughs) because I'm English and very uptight. But he, the moment my mother told me, it's like uh, it unlocked a key in my head and suddenly I understood him in a way I'd never understood him before. So we did become close, though in that very codified way. And he was incredibly supportive of me and Aidan. He loved coming to stay here on the farm. And I think in, I'm, I'm very like my father. We physically, we were, we were like twins. And I think in some way, he, I was living the life he could never have lived. But, but we, you know, he never discussed emotions with anybody. So that was never going to happen. Patrick, you mentioned the man in the orange jumper and, and a lot of your writing is in contemporary or relatively contemporary times, certainly your lifetime as a child of the 60s Ford. But this, of course, this, this story, Mother's Boy, is a historic fiction and you've done that before as well. And I wondered why do you, I mean, do you like this genre? I'm presuming that you do, but, but what is it about this genre that fuels your imagination? Uh, no mobile phones, <laughs> because the mobile phone is such an enemy of plotting for a novel. You know, so many situations that can be solved now by just picking up a phone. But also, it's it's more that I I just love unpicking the emotions of people in the past. And the, 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 it's a period that particularly interests me, I think, because it overlaps with living memory in, in my own family. So I, behind me, I've got boxes and boxes of letters, family letters, which are all getting sent to me as people die off. And it's completely fascinating to me bringing those to life and seeing that, yes, although the dresses were different and the customs were different, the emotions were just the same and the conflicts were just the same. And in fact, my my next novel, which I'm researching at the moment, is another costume drama if you like um but it's entirely about my own relatives so it's about in a way it's a sequel to a place called winter because it's about what happened in 1952 when the country was gearing up for the queen's coronation and out of the blue my great-grandfather harry kane announced to my grandmother who was i'd only just become a grandmother for the first time that he was selling up the farm in Canada and coming home to his little girl. And it's about what happened in the course of that year he spent in England. And it's also trying to unpick the mystery of why my grandmother did a really terrible thing, which was to send him back to Canada rather than encouraging him to stay in England. She sent him back to Canada where he died a pauper and was buried in an unmarked grave. So. Uh, the challenge to me as a novelist is to find a way of telling the story that isn't deeply depressing. <laughs> but it's also, I'm really looking forward to getting inside my mother and my grandmother's heads because they will be the two main conduits of the storytelling. I wonder how emotionally you're going to prepare yourself for that kind of journey. Oh, I can't wait. Emotionally, I don't know, I hardly have to prepare myself. I was very close to both of them and I, I knew wh- what made them tick. But what's so fascinating is having these letters between them, which are brutally frank in the way mothers and daughters can be. So my mother's letters are very frank about the early stages of her marriage. And what's particularly fascinating is now knowing that there's this powder keg 
waiting for her to discover in my father's desk, which of course at that stage she hasn't yet discovered. So um, your mother, your mother is still alive. No, no, no. My my mother is safely dead. Uh, everyone's dead. There's one. My my sister will be in the novel, but only as a, a one year old baby. So that's quite safe, not a speaking part. I have assured her that she'll be a very clever and attractive baby. Oh, yes. <laughs> By all means, at least a hundred words. What is your favourite among your many books? Is there one that you enjoyed writing the most, or that you learned the most as a writer? Learned oh, from. Gosh. Well, I mean, I, I feel quite lazy these days. I I, I I worry that I don't try hard enough, and so I I'm, I remain very fond of two very Cornish novels of mine, Notes from an Exhibition and Rough Music, partly because I, I just remember intensely being very happy at the time of writing them, nothing to do with the books, which are actually pretty grim, um, but also technically they were both very, very challenging to write. They're both told from multiple viewpoints and they, they're like very complicated plats of story. And I'm keen to do that again. I think my new novel may well be a bit like that. I have to decide how many viewpoints to tell it from, but I, I really enjoyed the challenge of that. And I loved the sense of characters not knowing what the other characters are thinking. Only the reader knows everything. Well, we, we, your, read, we your readers are so delighted that you are so prolific, a man of stage, a man <laughs> of books, everything. Patrick, I was reading in the British Council literature, there is a paper on you, it's called A Critical Perspective, and I'm not sure how you feel about this piece at all. And I can't even find the, the author's name here, but talking about you, the author says, called by Richard Canning, one of the, quote, great unsung English novelists, that was in The Independent in the year 2000, Gale has for over 20 years produced a series of fictions characterised by the collision of the bizarre with middle-class family life from the edgy early works to the more recent romances. Yet in the literary establishment, he can seem a marginal figure. Fiction prizes have eluded him and goes on to say, this author does, nothing damages a writer's serious reputation as much as the fact that they are widely read and much loved which is very interesting. Can you be popular and can you be a prize winner? I would like to think, of course, that you can be all of those things. What's your thoughts about that particular piece and observation of you and your work? Funnily enough, I did actually know that piece, so it's very interesting to hear. Um, I'll send you I the link. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to say it, but it's very accurate, actually. I, I, I've been shortlisted for prizes. I've never won them, and I think... Undoubtedly, it's true that there is a, a deleterious effect. If, if your work sells, if you're popular, you will not necessarily be taken as seriously. And, but there are exceptions. So, you know, wonderful Maggie O'Farrell, who has really broken through to the big time and you know, won the big prizes, remains a hugely popular author. But I wonder, I wonder whether it's, I don't know, it's, it's an element, there's a big element of accident to prizes. I've, I've, Luckily, very early on, I was a judge for the Costa Prize, the late lamented Costa Prize we no longer have. So I know just how much chance is involved. If, if the right book lands with the right judge, it has a good chance. But it's all too likely that your book will land with the wrong judge. And that will be that. You know, not everyone likes every book. Thank heavens. I, I would rather have readers than prizes, frankly.
exactly is, right. Exactly right. Um, we yeah. love without, you. Without, without readers, your book is 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 going nowhere. So. But also your books, your books, your stories. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned this one before. Notes from the museum. Uh, your books. There's so much to unpack in all of your books, and you give us so much. Not only entertainment, but just so much opportunity to think about ourselves and our own lives and the world around us. So a huge thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I think I think the one of the joys of reading fiction is when you feel recognised. When you find a book that says, effectively holds up a mirror to you, you feel your life has been noticed. And there's something about my plots or something, which a lot of people seem to respond to in that way. They say, oh, this is my family you're writing about. And I think that's very valuable. I'm very proud when that happens. Tell me about some of the personal responses you've had to, to, to Mother's Boy. Well, that's been very interesting because on the one hand, there are lots of people still alive who knew Charles. And I was very worried about that or how how they might react. And I've had really positive responses from that. A lot of them saying that they used to ache from the sense that Charles wasn't being fully himself, that he was so uptight emotionally and the book made total sense for them. That that was lovely. But on the other hand, I've had these responses from people who said they read it not knowing he was a real person. They simply read it as a story of a mother and a son. And it, it, it in several cases, they've written to say, oh, I'm a single mother. And this book really spoke to me because although it's a set in the distant past, it mirrors very much what, what my emotional experience with my son has been. And thank you for that. So, well, thank you, Patrick. You've brought to life Charles Causley and his wonderful mother, Laura, who there's still a part of me that wished that he, she'd actually skipped off to, into the sunset with Captain Amos Barnes, but... <laughs> Back to Chicago, yeah. Highly unlikely, but I was itching for a romance there. But this is just such a beautiful novel. We thank you enormously. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And um, enjoy your evening. and. I'll enjoy the lovely summer's day we're having here.